the Shadowland podcast. We hope you learn why you're here. Here is your host, Jim Michael. Welcome to Illuminate, the Shadowlands podcast. I'm the host, Jay Michael, also known as the Christian Nomad. I can be found on facebook.com forward slash nomad Christian. Today, our guest is Joshua Shea. He is father to two children and a husband to a wonderful wife and a recovering addict. He lived a pretty normal and successful life in central Maine, working as a successful magazine publisher, film festival founder, and eventually city council member. But he was hiding something, something at first he himself didn't even know he had, some mental health issues and a growing addiction to pornography and alcohol. In 2014, his life changed when he was charged with a crime. Since that time, he came to realize his issues, and with several years of sobriety under his belt, he now works as an author and speaker on pornography addiction. He wrote the book, The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships, which is available now on Amazon Kindle and paperback. He believes if we can begin to talk more about porn and pornography addiction and its connections to mental health, others may be able to address their addictions before they devolve into unhealthy or criminal activity. While he is not a medical expert or a mental health professional, and he is not trying to replace any of those, he, like most who have went through recovery, understands the issues better than most non-addicts. And while he may not be a medical professional, he is something of a pornography addiction expert. At this point, yes, unfortunately, with the internet, it's not hard to be a pornography expert. But in the area of porn addiction, he says he has amassed a substantial amount of third-hand knowledge for medical research and meeting many, many porn addicts. His website is recoveringpornaddict.com and can be reached at jshea.writer at gmail.com. That is J-S-H-E-A dot W-R-I. I-T-E-R at gmail.com, jshea.writer at gmail.com, recoveringpornaddict.com. We are pleased to have on the show today, Joshua Shea. Thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming on. And is it okay for I call you uh, Josh instead of Joshua? Please, please do. Uh, all right, all right. I know this. Some people, some people want in a certain way. Um, I'm going to ask you to... To start where I ask everybody, and that is go back as far back as you are able and just kind of tell us how you got to, you know, here towards the place that you would become. Well, you know, there's everyone has a story, and I'm sure yours is going to be different and have its little twists and turns, but I'm sure it makes up the entirety of the whole that makes you you. So it, I, I feel it as being important. So tell us how you got here. Sure. As far as how I got to be a uh, pornography addict, um, I think you can go all the way back to when I was first a child. Um, And I uh, got two very different uh, views of sexuality. I got one from my home, which was very strict Catholic. Uh, You never watched anything with nudity on TV. Sex was taboo. You never talked about that. I felt very safe at my house. Mm. I got a very different message at a babysitter's that I was at when my parents would go to work and I was three, four, five years old. I'd stay there. Uh, When I was a little bit older and in school, I'd go there after school for a few years. Um, 
they were very open with their sexuality. They um, didn't care if they were walking around naked or if an R-rated movie was on television. Um, I kind of liked this, but there was a lot of abuse going on at the house, um, sexual, physical, mental. Um, I saw some kids absolutely have horrible things happen to them. Um, I felt very unsafe here. So I got two very mixed messages about sex. I think that this played into my overall addiction later in life. The first time I ever saw hardcore pornography, I was about 11 or 12 years old. Uh, an older cousin of mine had a couple of penthouse magazines. And I tell you, the moment that I saw them, I became an addict. I wanted to see more. I was absolutely fascinated. There was a little bit of an element of danger to it because I know we weren't supposed to be looking at it. That um, was... I felt that I had discovered something that I knew was going to help me cope through the rest of my life. I knew that this was something that was just special and beyond the norm. The only other time I've ever felt that upon uh, seeing or trying something was about three, four years later when that was the first time that I got drunk at a wedding. And mm -hmm. I knew that, oh my God, this is the elixir of the gods. I have found something here that is going to make life easier. So by 15, 16 years old, I was completely hooked on pornography and completely hooked on alcohol. Um, there was a video store in my hometown about two miles from my house that I could go and rent videos at or porno videos at starting at about 14 years old. When I was 18, 19, that's when the internet started to get into everybody's lives. I made the transition over there. Now, I hid uh, my pornography addiction very well. Didn't hide the alcohol as well. But I was someone who, uh, I think I had issues with myself for a very, very long time. So I always tried to outwardly be something more than I knew I was. I rose up in the ranks of journalism uh, in Maine and started my own lifestyle magazine back in 2008 uh, or 2009. Um, that was a overnight success. Even though we were in the middle of the largest recession since the Great Depression, uh, it was an overnight success. It was huge. Everybody all of a sudden in my hometown knew who I was. Um, after a couple of years, uh, as you mentioned, I launched one of the largest film festivals in northern New England. And if that wasn't enough, I also uh, ran for my city council and won and ended up serving and acting as a local politician. Um, mm. Things were okay. I was, I was managing my addictions, hiding them from everybody as I was going through this. But then um, all of a sudden, our revenue stalled, and then our revenue started to drop. Now, I'm not a very good business person. I'm a decent writer. I'm a decent editor. Um, but when there's challenges in business and we don't have a ton of money coming in, yet the expenses are going up, that's when I kind of froze. That's when I kind of panicked. And I made the absolutely horrible decision to pull myself off of my bipolar medication. I thought that if I could... Uh, remove the medication, I could tap into my manic side. That manic side would allow me to be up another two, three hours every night. That would be time that I could use to save the company or evolve the company, whatever it needed to be. Unfortunately, I didn't get this pure manic high that helped anything. I just sunk into depression. And with that depression and the lack of medication came my alcohol and pornography addictions absolutely exploding. Um, I needed more and more and more, and I needed, you know, harder and harder. With alcohol, that 
you know, brings you from beer to wine to the hard stuff. With pornography, that brings you from looking at a picture to then looking at a video. And I ended up in chat rooms. Um, in early 2014, shortly, this was in uh, March, um, shortly before I was going into work one day, the Maine State Police showed up at my door and they told me that they believed that I had been uh, talking to an underage person online. Unfortunately, my behavior in these chat rooms was deplorable. I, What I liked to do was try to get a woman to uh, flash her boobs or to, to, to go even for further. And uh, one of these people, the police told me, was uh, underage. She was a teenage girl. When they showed me the evidence, eventually, I uh, found out that they were telling me the truth. Um, so that's, I, I lost my job that day. Um, that's when everything absolutely turned around. And, you know, I'll, I'll stop here for now and we can get into what the last several years have been in my life when you, when you want to. But let's uh, stop here for now. Okay. Um, and so, you know, that takes us over a lot of territory. And... I would just like you to uh, sort of get into the concept, like what dynamic did you have? We only have like a minute before our break, but what kind of dynamic at this time, 2014, did you have like with your wife, with your immediate family? It was, it, it was bad. My, I saw that the magazine was starting to fail in early to mid 2013. And that took all of my attention. I became a horrible father, horrible husband. My wife said that from, you know, mid 2013 to the time that I was arrested in March 2014, it was like having a roommate who didn't hold up his half of the bargain. You know, she didn't ask me to do anything around the house because I wouldn't do anything around the house. I was ignoring my mental health. I was ignoring my physical health. You know, I'd go four or five days without taking a shower. Uh, it was just, I was imploding and she tried to help me at times but i wouldn't take the help so eventually she just had to kind of throw up her hands and hope that i'd figure this out myself as with my kids you know i don't want to say we were estranged but i wasn't putting in the time and being a quality parent that i should have been all right and that unfortunately that's that's that is one of the places that this sort of thing leads uh and so we have a break coming up but on the other side of the break we're going to delve more into uh, what you did to become sober and sort of get back on the right track. But we have a break coming up, and so we'll do that on the other side. You can get a hold of Joshua Shea at recoveringpornaddict.com.
And we're back on Illuminate, the Shadowlands podcast. I am Jay Michael. You can get a hold of me at Nomad Christian on Facebook and Twitter. We are with Joshua Shea. He has a website that is called CoveringPornAddict.com. Also, he has a book that is available currently on Amazon called The Addiction That Nobody Will Talk About. The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. It has a subtitle that says, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships. It is out now on Kindle. I had just downloaded it a couple days ago and started to get into it. Uh, It has a lot in there. It's very, very well put together and very well read. Uh, It has a very conversational feel, so I feel like it reads quickly. Um, And you can find a lot. He blogs actively and regularly online. Uh, He is involved in counseling, so I definitely encourage anybody to get involved that is dealing with this, to talk to them, to discuss this. You might not feel like you have an addiction or an an addict, but everybody can benefit from knowledge and education on topics because everything can be abused. I mean, white sugar can be abused. So the more information we get on this topic, the better it is. So we're going to get back into it and we're going to look into, um, my question is just after you had your run in with the police and you're going through, cause there's a, there's a, like a two year window between when you first get caught with it. And when you end up having to serve some time, um, what, steps did you take or what was your mentality during that time were you did you embrace trying to clean up was there an apprehension was there denial how did that what did that time frame there that two years what did you do with yourself yeah well uh the the day after i was arrested and you know and it's the day i was arrested we had to dodge tv cameras at my house Mm. um you know we were dodging newspaper reporters this was a very big deal and i just wanted to get out of the situation uh the day after i was arrested i went and i saw my lawyer for the first time um and one of the questions he asked me early on was do you have any drinking or drug problem and uh my father and my wife were both with me at that meeting. And I said, you know, I have been known to drink a little too much now and then. And both of my father and wife said, no, he's, he's got a drinking problem. And my lawyer said, well, the first thing that I want you to do is to go and get help for that. And at that point I hadn't even heard of pornography addiction. So I wasn't thinking about that. I knew that I probably drank a little too much, but I didn't, think of myself as an alcoholic when he said you know do this this is one of those things that will look good for the judge i was willing to do anything that would look good for the judge so i said okay you know send me out send me wherever you want to go he sent me out to palm springs california i thought that i'd be there for 28 days i thought i'd just say yep i'm I'm, i drink too much blah 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 in 28 days i'd get my little certificate and it would say that i was a uh you know reformed alcoholic and I'd, i'd what they call fake it till you make it. Right. Well, it only took about seven or eight days. And then I realized that, oh my goodness, I am exactly who they are talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're talking about an alcoholic, I am textbook. Um, I ended up not spending 28 days there. I ended up spending 70 days there. 
Um, it was absolutely the most transformative experience of my life. Uh, it's when I started to examine what was happened, what happened to me as a child, and how that played into things. Uh, it's where I started to understand that the drinking was a coping mechanism. And it's where I started to understand that I actually had a pornography addiction that needed to be addressed. Uh, when I got back home to Maine, uh, I got into some deep therapy. I'd go a couple times a week couple hours every time. I started to read voraciously anything I could get my hands on. Um, after a couple months, I came to the conclusion that I really needed to go get some inpatient treatment for the pornography addiction as well. So I went off to a rehabilitation center in Texas. I spent seven weeks there in the uh, summer of 2015. That was an absolutely grueling, heart-wrenching, emotional experience, truly understanding the pieces that form to make me who I was and uh, what I needed to do to change them to, to become better afterwards. Uh, once I returned, you know, eventually I had to face the music and uh, I was sentenced to uh, nine months in jail, of which I served six months. Uh, when I went to jail, ironically, I was probably the healthiest that I'd ever been physically or mentally up to that point. The person who was sentenced was not the person who committed the crimes. I spent two years basically full-time uh, getting myself better, understanding what, what happened, understanding how I got to the place I was. So when I got to jail, instead of just pacing around or playing cards or, or watching TV all day, I wanted to do something to give back because there were very few resources about pornography addiction out there. So I decided I was going to write a book and in jail was where I wrote the first draft of uh, the addiction. Nobody will talk about. Hmm. Oh, well, that's, that's, and uh, I should also say I, I rebuilt the bridges with my family, my wife and kids. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of mea culpas to share and uh, I tried to become the present and cognizant father and husband they both deserved. So that kind of answers my next question is, uh, I was going to say, so your, your marriage was able to survive this. Yeah, and, and it actually is is better for it. Uh, she had one. She picked me up from uh, jail when I was booked the day I was arrested, and she said, "I just have one question. Did it involve little kids?" And I was like, "No, no. This was a teenager who I had no idea was a teenager." And she said, "Okay, that's what I want to check." She said, "You've been very sick lately, and we need to get you some help." And from that point onward, um, you know, we we became stronger. We became better. You know, we had counseling. Uh, you know, we had a lot of, you know, serious, serious conversations and she saw me putting in the work. I knew if I had denied everything, if I didn't think that I had a problem, if I hadn't tried to become a better husband, or a better father, she would have left. But she saw me doing the hard work to try to improve my life because I realized when I was at that first rehab, you know, I could fake this. I can get these certificates. I'm a good enough actor and I'm a good enough BSer that I can get through this. But at some point, all of the jail is going to be done. All of the probation is going to be done. The legal situation will be done. I don't want four or five years down the road to still have these problems. So yeah. I took it very seriously and I did the hard work to get to where I am today in recovery. Um, and so when you went to recovery, did you do um, the AA type of thing? Did you do 
I, um, I did those in the beginning. Uh, AA I probably stuck with for about nine months. Uh, I was a little bit shorter for uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous, but I did go to those meetings for a while. I believe that they are very good programs that have a lot to offer. Uh, my personality type is not one that meshes perfectly with those programs. I've seen them help people and save people. My belief is that uh, as long as you're sober, as long as you stay in recovery, as long as you're not relapsing, whatever you need to do to get there is fine. Um, it's just becoming a devout member of those groups was not really uh, what I needed for my recovery. Okay. And so did you, with your, uh, you had said previously with like a Catholic upbringing and stuff, did you did any of that help did you lean on any of that have you gone back to any of that sort of idea i I was that little kid who had 101 questions and being having 101 questions when you're a young catholic is not a good place to be (laughs) because you get 101 bad answers right um or you get 101 deflections of answers right Um, so i I, I saw, I really walked away from the church. Once I was uh, 16 or 18 years old and I got confirmed, I walked away from the church because it wasn't providing me with anything. I saw that it provided some people at mass with some kind of uh, relief or help or, or whatever you want to call it. I wasn't one of those people. So I walked away. What was interesting though, was when I was writing my book, I recognized just how much faith I still have, uh, just how much belief I still have in a higher power. I just have, I've always called that higher power the universe. Um, in the book, there are many times where I refer to, you know, I was standing in front of a group of 100 people. I had no idea what to say. And then all of a sudden, words started coming out of my mouth. And I credited the universe for helping me there. Um, after writing this for a while, it became clear that the universe was just a stand in for the word God. The mm-hmm. Catholics beat the word God out of me, so I didn't want to use it. So I called this higher power the universe and have a great relationship with it today. All right. All right. That's great. That's, yeah. And that's, um, it's one of those things because that was where I was heading with it was that the church unfortunately overlooks this a lot and doesn't, doesn't tend to like to look at mental issues in general as right. being something that can be dealt with. And so, like, I mean, there are studies from the Southern Baptist Convention, which I'm actually an ordained minister in, is as much as 60% of people who go to church on an average day have a pornography. Oh, yeah. It's it's much higher among that secular community. Right. Exactly. And so we have a break coming up. We will continue on the other side of this break. This is the Christian Nomad. I am with Joshua Shea, recoveringpornaddict.com.
And we're back on uh, Illuminate the Shadowlands. I'm the Christian Nomad. You can get me on Facebook at Nomad Christian. We are with a porn addiction expert here, uh, Joshua Shea. He is has a website called RecoveringPornAddict.com. RecoveringPornAddict.com. And I recommend and I push for everybody to get informed on this because even if you do not have a problem with it, I guarantee you, you know somebody who does. I guarantee it. It is not just one of the most pervasive things in society today, but it is one of those things that it infects every single aspect of society. We were talking uh, before about the fact that like the Southern Baptist Convention says at least 60% of the people who go to the churches and as much as 80% of the clergy have issues with watching porn and not just watching it, but addiction. And it's something that nobody wants to talk about because unfortunately we've somehow, and I blame the Victorians, sometime in the last hundred and some years, he decided sex is something you don't talk about. It's just something you do. And so it's become a real difficult issue in the church for religiously minded people for any of this. And so I recommend everybody get in contact with the recovering porn and you can find his book, the addiction. Nobody will talk about how I let my pornography addiction hurt people and destroy relationships. It is on Amazon right now. You can available in paperback and on Kindle. Like I said, I recommend everybody get involved with this. He blogs regularly. He has articles and interviews on his website as well as resources, and he offers counseling. So these are all things that I think we should get involved with and make sure that you are training yourself up again for even if you don't have the addiction, other people might. And you can always help. It, it just always helps when dealing with somebody who is an addict if you have some sort of insight into what they're dealing with. So getting back into it, you said you decided to write the book while you were serving time in prison because of, you know, this issue with the chat rooms and everything. So just talk about first the writing and how you wanted it to come off, how you sort of did that thing with the book and then what the book is and what you hope to achieve by it. Sure. Um, well, as I said, in the two years between being arrested and being sentenced, I read everything I could about pornography. And when I, the books that were available were really one of two different things. You either had books that were very scientific, uh, full of statistics, great books. I mean, they certainly helped me learn about this, this problem. Um, and then the other kind of books you had were the how to get over this problem. Um, you know, number one, do this, number two, do this, number three, do this. Um, and they were okay, but I never saw anybody's story. I never read about anybody. I think that we think of, uh, porn addicts. We think of these, you know, unmarried living in their basement, 19 and 20 year olds that, uh, have never kissed a girl 
people in real life. And I'll tell you, the people that I met at my rehabs, the people that I met at the 12-step groups, uh, they, they were not this stereotype that you'd see. So I thought if I could write this book, I could help beat the stereotypes because here I am, a 37-year-old father, uh, a 37-year-old husband, I white collar, uh, had a couple of companies, everything was going well for me. So I want to tell my story. Uh, in this book, you're not going to find more than two or three statistics. Uh, you're not going to find the secret to get over your pornography addiction. What I wanted to do was create a book that people who are not pornography addicts could actually appreciate. So it's a memoir, and it basically tells about, as it talks about the uh, rise and eventual crash of my pornography use, I tie it into the rise and crash of my magazine because those two tracks ran very parallel. So mm -hmm. a lot of the beginning of the book is actually about how my magazine came to be and uh, how you know I basically let it take over my life and and, and we saw the, the end result of that. Um, so ultimately, yeah, it's it's for the non-addict who doesn't really understand that anybody can be an addict, doesn't understand how people get there. It's also for those who are addicted. Now, as I mentioned, I started to be an addict when I was 15 or 16 years old. If you would have told me 20 years later where I ended up, I never would have believed you. For 99% of my addiction, I didn't have the capacity to go into chat rooms. I never did that kind of stuff. To me, that that's like cheating on my wife. And But I got so sick, my addiction led to this place. I was not taking care of myself, and I, I take full responsibility for what happened. I was not taking care of my mental health, and this is what happens. This is where I'm capable of going. So if there are people out there who are saying, okay, well, you did this. I, I would never do anything like this. Um, yeah, maybe I look at it a little too much porn, but I'm not you. Well, I never thought I could get there either. So my story is a bit of a cautionary tale, a bit of a warning to anybody who thinks they have an addiction. This really is where you can end up going. And uh, if you think you have a pornography addiction, you need to get some help. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the number one signs that somebody has a problem is that they deny that they have a problem. So, Absolutely. You know, it's generally, if it's something you can deal with, it's, you might not have as much of an issue with it. But if it's something you avoid or deflect or deny then it's definitely well and it's it something it's also a very it's a gray area from when you go from being able to manage it to not being able to manage it and people don't always recognize when that line is crossed right yeah and sometimes it moves quick sometimes it moves yeah. you sort of you're up there and you're handling it and then that fall is pretty fast i mean it doesn't take long um and like any good addiction you can kick it for a while, but when it comes back, it comes back just as ferocious as it was when you were last on it. You know, it, 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 it absolutely, absolutely, and it's it's like and people who say pornography, you know, it's not addiction. The World Health Organization has now classified it as an actual medical condition, but for people who think it's an excuse, or for people who think you can't really be addicted to that, like I said, I go back to when I was a child. The very first time that I tried alcohol or got drunk on alcohol and the first time I saw hardcore pornography, the same thing happened in my mind. Mm -hmm. I used alcohol and pornography through my 20s and my 30s largely for the exact same thing. I wanted to escape reality. I wanted to go to a place where I had control. 
Um, I use them. I use them absolutely interchangeably. So for me, there's absolutely no debate whether it's an addiction or not. I hope that some people who feel it's not a real addiction will take a look at my book and see just how it, it is real and it is something that needs to be addressed. You were throwing out, you know, huge statistics there. Um, I think the scariest statistic that I have seen was from a study done by uh, the Barna Group in 2016 that said that 33% of 18 to 35-year-old men believe they have a pornography addiction. That's one out of three men under the age of 35 walking around who has a pornography addiction. Do you know what that's mm -hmm. worse than? That's worse than cigarette addiction, but mm -hmm. we don't talk about like as you said, we're puritanical. We don't talk about sex. So how would we ever talk about something that's an addiction to sex? You and I could talk about cigarettes all day long. We can talk about booze all day long. And, you know, it's not hard to talk about people who are addicted to it. We need to get over this hump as a society to allow us to start talking about pornography. If we can talk about pornography, we can talk about pornography addiction. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's definitely something. And you know, I think one of the biggest issues we have right now is, like, with the addiction thing, people like to associate words together that aren't don't mean the same thing because they seem like that. So, you know, people, someone will say, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, in a, in a general scale, someone says, you know, like, you believe in God? No, I don't go to church. Like, well, no, that I did, that's not what I asked. I asked, you know, a different question. People will say addiction and they think of the chemical dependency because a chemical, well, you can't be chemically dependent to pornography. That's not what we're saying. You know, you can be chemically dependent to certain things. Addiction just means that you, the way you processes it is that it's something that you use, your body uses. It uses to cope. It uses to, but it's something well, you're, your you're, body mentally you're looking for that knows. dopamine hit. You're looking for a dopamine hit. Right, I mean, exactly. That's, it's that's something that your the, mind feels like it has to tickle have. Your, yeah, absolutely. You're trying to tickle your pleasure sensors. And while different addictions will do different things to your body, when it comes to the brain chemistry in addiction, addiction is addiction is addiction. Right. You know, the guy who gambles $1,000 and by the end of the year is up to $10,000. Know, he's getting the same little flick of his pleasure sensors that I got from pornography or alcohol or that other people get from drugs or food or whatever else they're addicted to. Ultimately, it's about trying to satiate your pleasure sensors and you start flooding them. They need more, they need harder, they need more extreme. That's why people like move on to hard drinks or hard alcohol. That's why I went from pictures to chat rooms, just trying to tickle that little itch that tells us we need it.
and we're back on Illuminate the Shadowlands podcast. I am the Christian Nomad, Jay Michael, and you can find our guest, Joshua Shea, at recoveringpornaddict.com. You can get his book on Amazon.com. You can get it on Kindle or in paperback. Uh, We have been having a great conversation about this so far. And I just want to touch on something that had been mentioned when you were going over your history, and that is that um, you'd said there'd been a babysitter and there was some abuse at that house. And some of the things you saw there maybe didn't, you didn't feel comfortable there, even though you did feel safe at home. Uh, can you talk about that, that babysitter and maybe that experience at that house and how that sort of colored your lenses or sort of helped, you know, create the monster you would eventually face? Yeah. Um, what I what I learned going through rehab and talking with my first uh, sexual addiction therapist who was out in Palm Springs, um, what I did um, and my, my way of looking at life, my way of getting through life, I was always the person who said, um, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I want. And if I get in trouble, I'll say I'm sorry. Uh, it's much easier to say sorry than for asking permission for something. Right. Um, that, that's that's a philosophy of somebody who has a very uh, tenuous survival instinct. I developed this survival instinct when I was back at that house. Like I said, I was babysat there from when I was a baby up until five years old. Before I started going to school, I'd be there all day long. After I started school, I was there in the afternoons for probably about another three years. Um I look back at this woman who was my main caregiver and I can see just how sick she was. Um, She had no flooring in her house. Everywhere was carpet, every single room. She vacuumed that carpet five or six times a day. She would comb my hair. Not kidding. 12 to 15 times a day. Uh, She called me by a different name. She called me George. And one time when I asked her why she said, she just liked that name better. Um, she was morbidly obese. She was very depressed. You know, I can look back now and recognize that this is not somebody who should have been taking care of children. Um, she was just not a healthy person. Um, while I was there, you know, she had a temper. She had no problem swatting a kid if they had done something wrong. She had no problem moving a kid from room to room very viciously, uh, putting them down into a bed or into a chair very viciously. Um, she, uh, as far as her demeanor around kids, had no problem using foul language, had no problem describing some of the worst things that happened to her in her life, and she had been abused pretty badly. Um, there were also a lot of, there's also a lot of sexual inappropriateness. At one point when I was a child, I was forced to touch a, a, touch a girl in her uh, genitals just so I could see that girls and boys were different. And I saw this happen to other kids too when, in different situations, including my brother. Now, what I developed there was this survival instinct that just said, get through to the next day. Just whatever's going to happen, survive. If I did something wrong and she put me in a dark room, I might be in that dark room for 15 minutes or I might be in that dark room for four hours. I didn't know. So I had to develop instincts that said, just get through today, just get through today, just get through today. Now, that was the most unsafe experience and scary experience of my life up until the point that I got into this 
uh, financial bind with my magazine because I didn't know what to do about the advertisers who had prepaid. I didn't know what to do with all the subscribers who were expecting their magazines. I had a quite a you know decent sized staff that were expecting to get paid every week, and I didn't know if I was going to make payroll every week. So I got to this place of anxiety and of just being scared that I had never been since I was a little kid, and. In getting to that place you know, with my magazine, uh, it, it triggered a lot of issues and a lot of memories that I had repressed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when it came to overdoing the alcohol and overdoing the porn and, and my addictions getting to that critical point that the police had to intervene, I think that a lot of that had to do with running from those repressed memories that were starting to pop back up. And I've walked my way through a lot of those memories with my uh, uh, counselors and with my therapists that I've had. Uh, They call what happened to me a perfect storm, that I had these repressed memories coming in at the same time that my uh, businesses was falling apart, uh, uh, happening the same time that my estrangement was happening with my family, happening at the same time that alcohol and porn became bigger pieces of my life. It was just all of these different things came together. And, you know, thank God those police showed up at my door when they did, because if I hadn't had them show up, I only give even odds that I'd be with you here today because something was going to get me. I was the most unhealthy person I had ever been to that point. And, you know, statistically speaking, I probably should have driven my car into a house because I was drunk so much of the time. Uh, But thank God something got me because uh, it was a perfect storm of different things coming together all at one point. And so what do you contribute? This is sort of just a way my mind went. What do you contribute your ability to deal with this to? Do you think there was, it's just your personality? Is it something about your family or just will or, you know, maybe God, who knows, that when you saw the problem, you were able to step up and face it and overcome? Because a lot of people can eventually, some people never realize they have the problem or never admit it. Some people will they realize they get it, but never, over, never overcome it. What do you think for you? Was there is there a thing that you well, think is I, new? I think that my personality type is that I, I'm a leader. I'm a mm-hmm. problem solver. I'm somebody who likes projects. Um, you know, I think that's what made me a a good magazine publisher. Mm-hmm. It made me good at running a film festival. It made me a good politician. That you know, I I'm able to compartmentalize things. I'm able to look at problems. I'm able to look at solutions, figure out what's best. Um, and I'm willing to throw myself into it. Um, I saw people at rehab who were kicking and screaming that they didn't have a problem, that they didn't need to get better. Um, I accepted the fact that, you know, it took, like I said, about a week. Uh, I accepted the fact that I had a problem. So if you have a problem, you need to solve it. Um, and you need to figure out how to solve it. So first I understood my problem, and then you know the, I had all these professionals at my disposal. Might as well figure out how to solve the problem. Uh, my drinking, my porn use had brought me to this point in my life that I didn't like. Not only you know had I committed a criminal act, I was incredibly unhealthy. I was just a pain to be around. I was not a good person, and I was not a healthy person. I wanted to go back to being that, or maybe even to be that for the first time in my life. Uh, so thankfully, 
I saw recovery as a project. I still see recovery as a project. You know, recovery is not uh, like a destination that you reach and finally you're there. Uh, recovery is, you know, it, it, it's something that's ongoing. Um, being an alcoholic, being a porn addict, it's not like having a broken arm that heals. It's more like having diabetes. You have to continually monitor it. You have to continually uh, make sure that you're on the correct path you know doing shows like this going and doing presentations uh this is part of my recovery is talking about what happened to me keeping it front and center in my mind so i don't end up back into those places and you know i'll, I'll tell you i actually have a harder time not drinking than i have not looking at porn you know sundays come up and there's football well 10 years ago football was sunday was hanging out and bar hopping with my friends or having some beers over at somebody's house now sundays come up I'm at home by myself watching football because that's the safest thing for me to do. If I'm with friends, I know that I'm going to be tempted. I know I'm going to be triggered. So you have to change your life. You have to change your lifestyle. And that's just part of this project called recovery for me. Right. Absolutely. <clears throat> and so with uh, some of the writing and the blogging you do, um, is that also a part of like the therapeutic aspect or is that more mission yeah. no it's 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 both to tell you the truth the book is really about how i descended into porn addiction mm -hmm. um, it's about how i got to this problem i started the blog uh probably about a year after i got out of jail um i wanted to show people that recovery was possible if you bought the book you can then come to the website and see recovery is possible. If you are a porn addict or you're the loved one of a porn addict, you can come to my site and see that recovery is possible. I write a lot about the different tips and techniques that I've used in recovery. Um, I write about just, you know, stream of thought things that happen these days. For instance, the other night I was flipping around the television and there was a documentary about how the porn industry uh, in the late 90s had this giant HIV scare. And it really forced me because that was when I was watching porn videos in the late 90s. And that was one of those things that forced me to look at, oh my goodness, you know, here I was looking at pornography 20 years ago. Here's what happened to these people. They looked like hell 20 years later. So, you know, there are still wake-up calls everywhere. And uh, I have to look for them and stay on the straight and narrow. Absolutely. And, yep, therefore, the grace of God, there go I. So we've all, we all have to kind of keep our eyes open as we walk through this life. You can get a hold of Josh Roche at recoveringpornaddict.com recoveringpornaddict.com
And we're back on Illuminate the Shadowlands podcast. I am the Christian nomad, J. Michael. Uh, we are here with our guest, Joshua Shea. His book, The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships, is available now on uh, Amazon.com, on Kindle. You can get it in paperback. Uh, I definitely recommend it because, as I had said previously in this program, you can never have too much information or be, you know, arming yourself with the knowledge of what what does a porn addict look like? What does an alcoholic look like? Well, if you look at Josh Shea six years ago, that's what it looks like. And you would think it was a perfectly well-adjusted individual with a family and a thriving business. So... We are getting into this point where we've dealt with pretty much all the topics. And now, you know, I've realized when I was going over your website that you have uh, pornaddictcounseling.org and that you offer advice and support and things. Kind of get into that and sort of tell us what that is, how you do it. Do you counsel yourself? Just give us a sort of a, sure. what you're doing there. Sure. What I found was uh, after I launched the website, um, I started getting email from people who had questions, both addicts and those who were close to them, mostly wives, girlfriends mm-hmm. uh, of, of addicts, getting email, just asking for advice. And uh, when the book came out, that expanded threefold. I was actually spending a couple hours every day answering email. And I'm not somebody who writes five words and that's it. I'll write you a page and a half. And what I found was that the time that I was spending uh, counseling these people, giving them advice, sharing my story and sharing, uh, you know, what I thought that they should do, this was actually cutting into my time as a freelance writer, which is what I make most of my money doing. Um, So at the advice of my therapist, she said, start a side counseling business because you're giving away a lot of great information, uh, but it's cutting into your uh, way to make a living. So now I charge a very small fee. I deal with, like I said, it's about equal addicts and uh, women who are the uh, partners of addicts. And really what I consider it is a bit of a way station between doing nothing and getting, uh, you know, real uh, official therapy. There are a lot of people who don't want to go to a therapist and just sit down and start blurting out all of their skeletons in their closet. Um, I think what people find for me is that I'm very uh, upfront about very forward, you know, some might say blunt, but I'm not going to judge you. You want to mm-hmm. tell me that what you love is watching sheep have sex with horses uh, during sunsets while the fish are all jumping? Well, that's fine. I'm not going to judge you. You like what you like. You're into what, whatever you're into. How is that causing a problem? Let's talk about the problem it's causing. I'm not here to judge. Ultimately, I think that there are two things you need to do when you're dealing with any addict, uh, and you know, porn addict included. That's number one. You have to create a safe space. Uh, that's what I try to do with people. Whether I do a video chat or we're talking on email, I create a safe, safe space where you can say anything to me and you're not going to be judged. That's also the number two part. No judgment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that's one of the things that stops us from talking about pornography. We're all so worried that people are going to judge us based on what we like. And maybe you like seeing, you know, two girls. Maybe you like seeing, you know, old ladies. Whatever is your thing, 
people tend to be very ashamed of that. And, you know, I've tried to create a space where you can talk about this. We can be open about this. Let's talk about the impacts it's having on your life. Let's talk about what you can do to fix it. And quite often, you know, I'll talk to somebody four or five times. And at that point, they're ready to move on and see a professional with therapy. They just needed to get over that initial hump get a little bit comfortable talking about it, understand that, yes, it actually is a problem that they need to face. Um, and I'm doing this because there was nobody like this out there for me. Um, you know, ha and I think that if I could have had somebody a year earlier, two years earlier, just to sit down and say, hey, do you think that the porn stuff might be getting out of hand? I at least, I probably would have said no but I at least could have had a conversation about it and maybe that would have made some help. So I'm just trying to be a voice out there, a sounding board, somebody you can bounce some things off of uh, without fear of prejudice, without fear of judgment and who's, who you know tries to create a safe space. Right. And I think the shame thing is a big, big deal because um, not that I don't think, we should take shame completely away because that's one of the things that deters people from doing a lot of crimes is right. the fear of the shame. But I do, I definitely in my time and my experience as being a minister, I have counseled people. And the one thing I come into saying is, listen, there's absolutely nothing you can tell me that's going to change the way I look at you. And, and I'm, and when I say that I'm honest, I mean about anything. I mean, again, like you said, most, Depraved thing you can think about. Honestly, my opinion is kind of that we're all depraved. And so it's not going to lower my opinion. I probably had a pretty low opinion in general because I just, humans, we're all humans and we all have our problems. So I tell people all the time, I don't get, like they'll say, do you get mad? Or I don't get mad. I don't even get frustrated. Occasionally I might get um, a little, uh, you know, I might say that, you know, maybe I'm a little, um, you know, saddened by something, but I don't, I don't really let it get to me because, you know, I, I don't want there to be a shame. I think we do need to talk about stuff and especially porn addiction tends to be related to people who deal with shame, who, who don't know how to, how to handle it. And when they don't know how to deal with it or place it or put it into its proper perspective, it sort of tends to be you know, porn tends to be one of those things that people are into and that's an issue with them. So they do walk hand in hand. So that's definitely, I believe, the message that needs to be. That's the most effective message is taking the shame off of it and saying, just deal with it. Just look at it, talk about it, call it by name. My, my mom actually always said, if you won't call it by name, how can you tell it to leave? <laughs> Because she'd say, point. if you wanted that's, to leave, you say, you, leave. Well, who's you? Call it by name. You know, tell them to get out. But, um, so, with this, and, you know, I was looking over, and actually, even while you were talking, I was going on and looking at some of the stuff on the actual, the counseling.org site. And, yeah, there's a lot of information on here. And so, at this point, do you see yourself more as sort of, like, developing a con compendium of knowledge or do you think that you know your story is the primary thing that how you connect with people 
Well, the story is how I connect with people, and I knew that my first book had to be my story. Uh, ultimately, if I'm going to uh, try to make some differences in this world, if I'm going to try to build a platform and you know become a pornography addiction expert, I got to let people know what happened to me. I've got to let people know where I'm coming from. I'm actually right now shopping my second book. Uh, which hopefully will be out by mid-2019. Um, it's a book that I've actually uh, geared toward the female partner of a, of a uh, porn or sex addict. Um, I co-wrote the book with a uh, licensed marriage and family therapist out of California. And we did this very simply. We basically took the 65 most frequently asked questions we could find on uh pornography websites, pornography or pornography addiction websites, pornography addiction message boards. And we took the questions that women constantly ask. And because I know a lot of women don't know that these sites exist, don't want to go on there and ask these questions. Uh, we wanted to create something that was a safe space for these women who have just found out or believe that their partner may be a porn addict. I'm hoping that as time goes on, my story becomes less of the focus and the focus becomes on porn addiction and the fact porn addiction in our society is going out of control. You know, I mentioned that those, you know, 35% of men under 35 are addicted to pornography. Well, statistically that number is only going to rise. It's going to be 40% of men under 35. Then it's going to be 50% of men under 35. And those men right now who are under 35, well, in 10 years, They'll be 45. In 10 years, they'll, 20 years, they'll be 55, then 65. So you tell me, 30, 40 years from now, when if we do nothing, half of our male population will be addicted to pornography. Now, if you think this Me Too stuff is pervasive, imagine what this country and this world, because this is a worldwide problem, imagine what this world looks like when roughly half the men have addiction to pornography. That's that's a mentally unhealthy world. And that's what I'm trying to talk about now. We need to talk about this. We need to be proactive, not reactive. We were reactive with the uh, problem with opioids. We need to be proactive with our problems on pornography. Absolutely. And so that's, that's where we're going to end this. And hopefully in the future, we'll have you back and we'll be able to talk about more of what you've done. But uh, I definitely see this as being a worthy cause and something that again nobody can have too much information on this topic so our guest for today is joshua shea uh, recoveringpornaddict.com recoveringpornaddict.com is where we send you check out his blog check out his book and we thank you so much for coming on the show thank you thank you so much for having me i appreciate it
about. That was Joshua Shea, recoveringpornaddict.com. I am very thankful to him for showing up. This is something that we need to talk about. We need to talk about sex in general. I know if you listen to the show for any amount of time, you'll realize I will actually have quite a few people on who deal with sex, sexual behavior, things like that. That is because I believe it is very important that we deal with these things. See, we live, and a lot of people do the, the Puritan thing. I actually blame the Victorians. There were whorehouses in the United States of America, legally. They were licensed. And yet, we were a Christian nation. We didn't blame the thing because it exists. We said, work on yourself. You don't do away with the thing because you can't control it. You work on yourself. And one of the things is, is that that has caused this thing where we just out of sight, out of mind. Let's not talk about it because it's uncomfortable to deal with. As the church, that's not how this is supposed to work. We're supposed to be dealing with all the hard issues and have answers for all the hard issues. Joshua Shea, as as he had said, he has a Catholic upbringing, so he had a lot of that to fall back on. I really do believe that's. I really do hope that he continues his walk and his his striving, and I really do hope he he finds his way back to God, not the universe, God, because Jesus can help him more than anything he could ever know. But I'm very glad that he's doing what he's doing, and I am inviting him back because I believe this is very important. We need to address things like this. I'm going to read to you some passages out of the Bible, okay? Genesis 35:22, And it happened when Israel, that's Jacob, dwelt in the land, that was Canaan, that Reuben, his son, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. That's it. It doesn't continue it. It mentions that it happened. Is that saying it's a good thing? No, because even having a concubine is a bad thing for Jacob to have. But it's mentioning that it exists. It's not to say, oh, I knew this person and they had two wives. I'm not endorsing them having two wives. I am saying that it happened. Genesis 38. Go read it sometime. Judah and Tamar. Consider a whore. He said, whoever this whore is, we need to kill her. And then realize, oh, that's it's his daughter-in-law that he just had sex with. He shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have used her sex and willing to throw her out like that. We go and we have Lot and the 19th chapter of Genesis. And after he goes up to Zor, he dwelt in the mountains because they were scared because of all the fire and brimstone. And his two daughters were with him. The firstborn says to the younger, our father is old and there is no man on all the earth. They thought everything had blown up. They say, they can come inside of us that we can have children. Come, let us make our father drink wine because they knew he wouldn't do it to them sober. So they made, they had him drink and when he got drunk, so laid with them, and sure enough, she said, do the same thing to the younger, and the younger did it. They both had children by him. It's in there, and guess what? Now, did it turn out bad? Yeah, it turned out bad, because the Moabites and the Ammonites were, were horrible. The point is, is, it addresses incest openly, and without being like, oh, did you hear about this? No, it just says it, because it happens. So the fact that it's saying it happened is not saying, oh, well, it's a good thing. No, something bad came from this. Joshua refers to Rahab, the harlot. You know why she had an apartment right there on the wall? Because she was so active in her whoredom. And the guys were going through like a turnstile. She was active. She was active. And guess what? After she converts, it ends up being in the lineage of Christ, an actual whore who was so busy that she had to make sure she had a place close enough so they could get this thing done quick enough and get the guys out. 
Well, in Second Samuel, one of David's sons fell in love and lust with one of his daughters, also by the name of Tamar, oddly enough, ended up raping her. And Absalom ends up killing him over it. But this is rape, and this is talked about. Why? Because it happened. You have to address things that happen. We don't talk about this. We don't. The reason why people who are raped have such a hard time dealing with it, children who are raped have such a hard time dealing with these things, is because we make them feel like crap over it. We say things like, oh, well, this horrible thing happened, but you're not damaged. You're not damaged. Oh, oh it's okay. You're not all, you're not, you're not totally damaged. I mean, it, it's, it's despicable. Second Samuel uh, 16, Absalom goes up and has sex with all of David's concubines and a tent on top of the house in front of Israel. So anybody walking by can see him having sex. That's mentioned. Songs of Solomon, you have, your two breasts are like two fawns. Twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Now that means that they were small but perky, and they bounced when they when she moved. That's what it's saying. It's saying when she moved, they kind of bounced like fawns bouncing around when, in the lilies, and they're having fun. The seventh chapter talks about your statue is like that of palm trees, and your breasts like a cluster, meaning you're, you have these long legs, long legs. And when I put my hands on your breast, it goes through my fingers like clusters. Um, that's sexual. There are even allusions to oral sex in the Songs of Solomon. Or, I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. <laughs> Ezekiel, you want to talk about some, some stuff. I mean, good lord. Ezekiel 23 talks about the two sisters, the two harlots. How that he, you know, he lusted after the Assyrians, or neighbors, because the men were these beautiful men on horseback. And he even mentions the fact that you were raped by the Egyptians, and yet you liked the rape. You actually enjoyed the rape and you, you know you lusted after that hard painful sex that you had with them heck the 20th verse has one of the most insane lines in it about the fact that you lusted for their paramours you lusted for their their men because their penises were like those of donkeys and their ejaculate was like that of horses is that not a lewd terminology to describe something it's in the bible that's in the Bible. I'm going to finish up on this. Matthew 8. You have the centurion who goes to Jesus and says, you need to help save my servant. A lot of people say it. Others say, my boy. Now, why would some say my servant and others say my boy? My boy is laying paralyzed. He's tormented. Can you save my boy? Because the word that is used there is paies, which means boy, youth, child. It also could mean a female girl. It's used in the Bible to describe somebody who's under strict training and strict oversight. Now, in this case, what it means is this is, in this culture, when they were over them, they would inseminate them. They would seminary, put, but they put all their knowledge, including their semen, into them. This was a captain of the guards. Now, in Roman society, they had a polite society where it wasn't polite to talk about this sort of thing so he didn't even want jesus coming into his house because he would because of the fact that you know i'm, I'm having sex with this boy and i, I actually love him i love him like a, a child now like a, like a son now i just want him to have health it doesn't say doulos which is servant he actually references that later he says well i say he's chump and my servants say how high doulos which means servant bond slave not a servant and what does Jesus say? When he tells Jesus that, you know, just say the word and, and, and he'll be saved. I know that will happen with you. 
And Jesus marveled, and he said to his followers, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Meaning that he, this guy believes in me, and yet he, he's a homosexual. And I say unto you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and the kingdom of God in heaven. And the sons of the kingdom, which are Israel, will be cast out into darkness. And he said to Centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so it will be done for you. And his servant, his boy, his, his sexual partner, was healed that same hour. But am I endorsing homosexuality? No. I'm saying, here's a man who's a homosexual, and he's saying, and he says, no, you don't even have to go in. I know that if you say the word, you will be brought back to health. And Jesus didn't even ask what his sins were. He didn't say, oh, you know, your sin is, is having sex with a child, so I can't do this. No, he said, your faith in me will save that boy. Because Jesus was worried about the soul. See, you change the person's soul. You change their mind and their actions will follow. You don't like people living horrible lifestyles? Help change their soul. You don't like the fact that, oh, well, we have abortion. Okay, help change the people's hearts. They'll change their behavior. You don't, oh, you don't like the fact that this person is, yeah, a homosexual or a lesbian, or they're doing this or that, or they're living with somebody they're not married to. Oh, okay, well, guess what? Get the Holy Spirit to save them. Work on them. Don't matter what their sin is. Jesus didn't ask if we help save their souls and their actions will change. We don't have to beat them over the head with their sin. We help them and their actions will change. I want you to consider being like Jesus. Why do I deal with people openly about sex and not condemn them? Because I'm in the business stalking the kingdom of souls for God. What are you in the business of? God bless you all. Thank you for joining us. Come again.